Hi everybody and welcome to this uh, festive episode. I'll make it festive, I'll put some sleigh bells in the background or something. Welcome to this festive episode of Second Features and um, a little bit different this time. Uh, we are um, well, very happy to bring in straight away a special guest for the show which is in fact Dr Laura Main of the University of Hull. Hello Adrian, I'm so happy to be here. How are you? Um, I'm, I'm great, thank you. Yes. <laughs> So we've been talking for a while and for a long time I've been very keen to talk about some Edgar Wallace films. I'm on a bit of an Edgar Wallace kick this year, it feels like. And um, and Laura published some excellent work on the British Edgar Wallace films of the 1960s uh, a few years ago. And so that seemed like a good excuse to talk about some of these Merton Park Edgar Wallace films uh, from the uh, from the early 60s so that's really where we are we're just going to be there today and talk about those and I've got some questions and uh, yeah so I guess I'm doing the interviewing today which is interesting but um, so with the films that we've picked there's a lot of them and you suggested that we talk about the clue of the twisted candle yeah which from what I could tell was the was that the very first one that they did um yeah I don't know if it's the first one they made, but it's the pretty 1960, um, pretty early on in the cycle. Uh, and I think like one of the sort of better examples of those Martin Park films. Mm. And it's quite a sort of convoluted but interesting thriller. Um, so, I, I mean, that's probably the first one I watched as well. Uh, it's kind of why I chose right. it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a fun one. You've also picked a film called House of Mystery, mm-hmm. which um, was a Merton Park film, but was not, as far as I can tell, an Edgar Wallace film. So we can perhaps get into the, that and the differences between the two. Um, but first of all, I thought perhaps we should just paint a bit of a picture about Edgar Wallace and the sort of significance of Edgar Wallace in in film and in culture in general in the 50s and 60s what's your sort of experience with Edgar Wallace is it just these films or have you Um, come across him in other forms well it's kind of likely that you'll be able to talk about Edgar Wallace more than I will because I'm kind of approaching this from like the b-movie and they tended to be based on thrillers um sometimes they were written to order in like a very short space of time by you know um very sort of established writers uh who kind of were used to writing these kinds of mysteries um and often they were kind of based on uh source material and a really popular author who of you know thrillers and mysteries was edgar wallace uh so the yeah yeah, the b-movies um made uh for uh Merton Park tend to be based on Edgar Waller Edgar Wallace stories um they weren't sort of all Edgar Wallace stories originally um the other one we've chosen to talk about um by uh the House of Mystery um that's a B movie which looks mm-hmm. like an Edgar Wallace thriller but isn't really yeah uh, so, um, but yeah, they, I mean, he was very popular. His thrillers and mysteries were very popular. Um, and uh, it just so happens that a lot of these sort of one hour second features slash B-movies tended to, uh, I mean, the format really worked quite well. The sort of crime thriller that could be shot in a studio in a couple of rooms, the sort of mystery format suited it really well. So Edgar Wallace's work was mm. sort of made for that. Yeah, I suppose I shouldn't really have. Yeah, perhaps starting with Edgar Wallace was the uh, was the wrong approach. You mentioned how, and this is something that is in your article um, or your 
yeah, uh, let me let me get the, give the title. Whatever happened to the British B movie micro budget filmmaking and the death of the one hour supporting feature in the early 1960s, which uh, was published in the Historical Journal of Film, Radio and Television. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? It's quite a long title. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really think about what that. You said, <laughs> you, you said in there, it was interesting that a lot of these B movie features, these supporting features or second features, that crime was the most popular genre, which I hadn't really realised. So that makes sense that if they've got to make a lot of crime films, that they would then go to somebody like Edgar Wallace, who was probably the most prolific of all the crime authors and uh, and was just seemingly never fell out of fashion. Yeah. Um, and like, it's kind of worth, because like the, the sort of kind of film, the one hour um, you know, crime thriller, uh, it's worth sort of, I think talking about where they came from and what they were just because it's not, mm. you know, this, this was a format that sort of died out by the mid sixties pretty much. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like a relic of how cinema programming used to work. And I don't think many audiences today would be sort of familiar with them or if they are, they will have seen sort of similar <clears throat> crime drama thriller stuff on television, which is where these kinds of films eventually ended up moving in like the fifties mm. and sixties. Um, so, um, I mean, I, pr I think that the sort of the B movie, which again, they, a lot of them tended to be cry one hour crime thrillers, pot boilers, if you like, um, they sort of evolved out of what used to be called the quota quickie. Yeah. Um, so the quota quickie was, uh, a kind of very generally they were quite cheaply made, um, like around about one hour uh, long features that were that would be shown on the like the bottom half of the cinema programs so you'd have an a feature and then you'd have like a sort of yeah a second feature or b feature um originally they were sort of introduced because there was a uh, an act um uh sort of bit of legislation the cinematograph act of 1927 i was getting quite dull legislation but bear with me no, no. um stipulated that a certain percentage of films made every year had to technically be British films because Hollywood was really dominating the British film industry in the 20s and people thought well this is not great we need to carve out a space for British cinema um so they introduced this you know bit of legislation um so you know a one way that companies uh, tried to get around that was by saying all right we'll make British films that are classified British um really cheaply using studio space we already sort of have going um, we'll sort of just make these things to order and then technically we're sort of satisfying what this act sort of is requiring that a percentage of films are British so it didn't really sort of do much to change the fortunes of the British film industry but I mean it did sort of help establish like you know the we cinema used to work very differently like you'd go to the cinema you'd see an a feature you see a sort of b feature or a second feature and you'd see sort of a feature and you might see some like newsreel footage or some short films or um things like that so the experience of going to the cinema was very different mm. um and that's kind of what um the films that we're talking about today that's kind of what they are they would have been shown on the second half of the cinema program they wouldn't have been very expensively made um they weren't generally eligible for box office receipts so they didn't actually make money they were just kind of there as a sort of filler mm. uh, for the cinema program yeah that's one point if we could just pick up on that there's a lot there that i'd like to come back to but yeah the money thing was, i thought was interesting that these second features they just were sort of sold for a flat fee and they didn't get any percentage of the box office so why were they financial how were they financially viable where did they make their money who was who was paying for them uh, 
Well, they weren't, and that's why they stopped making them, really. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they're... <clears throat> Like the, I think the budgets around like the late fifties um, budgets for these sort of one hour supporting features would have been around fifteen thousand pounds ish. That's our ballpark. Mm. The more sort of higher quality ones, maybe around twenty thousand, twenty five. Um, right. But yeah, they were sold for a flat fee, so they needed to recoup the money that you know the production costs. And basically, around the early. 60s by that point production costs were had gone up to the point that it actually wasn't profitable to make these even cheaply and sell them um but you know there were uh producers and distributors who made a living from making and selling these films who Mm. kind of found themselves in the position by the early 60s where they were trying to you know desperately trying to make and sell these b features and they weren't kind of getting anywhere there wasn't really a market for them anymore um so i think a large part of it is yet cost um and the other thing is uh you know television uh the crime drama was kind of moving to television well, and yeah. the cinema format wasn't was kind of changing as well you know you didn't always the double feature was sort of you know going the way of the dodo yeah and you mentioned that i think this because generally speaking a feature like a films were getting longer and so they so well, how long would people have gone to the cinema for then it traditionally if films were shorter and they'd have a supporting feature with it as well, was it? Were you still looking at a sort of three hours or so night out? Um, yeah, um, I actually kind of <laughs> I did this this term as an experiment. I was teaching a module in British cinema, and I put together uh, a, a cinema program from Ooh. you know nineteen sixty, nice, uh, and tried to include all the material. I edited it together to include all the material a sixties cinema audience would typically have seen they went to the cinema and the program came to about three and a half hours long um included two films a main feature peeping tom and a b feature which is house of mystery um independent artists and so you know newsreel um ads and things like that i tried to it was quite difficult to find out what a cinema program looked like yeah because like there's just no work on that there's just like it's very hard to find out i guess you could look at like newspaper listings or something i don't so yeah i try I sort of tried to do that so about three and a half hours um right. so like i know we don't really think of film like if we think of a film right you know so you watch a film on netflix or you get a dvd it's a film it's a discrete yeah. kind of thing whereas um th- this is kind of a way of thinking of cinema which is like it's a program right you go to the cinema and you see all this programmed material and actually what you're getting is kind of two films and the news and a bunch of other material um so it's kind of like seeing a film in the context of that stuff um so that's i was kind of encouraging students to think about how their experience was different seeing a film as part of you know the cinema program um none of them fell asleep which (laughs) i was impressed with like really hats off to them (laughs) but yeah, so um, there was an issue with, um, you know, in the 60s, the sort of big budget epic, you know, films were actually getting longer. Yeah. If you look at the amount of films that were like over 100 minutes long in the early 60s versus the later half of the 60s, they were just getting longer. Um, stuff like Dr. Zhivago and whatnot. Uh, so actually that real estate of the cinema program was shrinking. So actually imagine going to see uh, Lawrence of Arabia and a B movie. Mm. I mean, 
so yeah the program was sort of shrinking a bit and were they uh, this is perhaps I don't know if this is a silly question or not but we talk about these films as being second features but were they shown first were they like a support act at a gig or were they shown after the main film so were they the second feature uh yeah i mean as far as i can tell it was first right. so you'd yeah you'd because i mean you might not stick around <laughs> sec- yeah second in terms of billing but first in terms of order yeah of play, if think. You, yeah think of it like a supporting act if you go yeah, to see a that's gig. what i just wanted to clarify uh, yeah it's that's kind of a good way, way of putting it yeah um and actually uh you know i kind of looked at archive material on you know people there was it's, there's not much there but there was a sort of audience attitude survey um Ooh. from 1963 the federation of british filmmakers commissioned it i think so they asked people what they thought of these these films um and uh they found in general the people that they'd asked um they found that people saw them in different ways like some people used the second feature as a way of like timing their arrival at the cinema <laughs> So they they might come kind of in the middle of the second feature. Um, people might talk throughout it. Um, yeah. So it was it wasn't necessarily see it wasn't kind of the main attraction. Seventy um, percent of the people they asked couldn't remember the name of the second feature they saw when they went to the cinema. Um, but on the other hand, people felt shortchanged if they didn't have them. So uh, there was a quote from an audience member who said. Uh, I think that coming out of the cinema without seeing the second feature is like walking out of a restaurant and leaving the suite on the table. Um, <laughs> it's an unknown quantity. You don't know. You might have missed something decent. Yeah. So, you know, if you tried to take these things away, some people would complain because, you know, traditionally they got a second feature and then the main feature. Yeah. And, and these, um, these Merton Park, um, Edgar Wallace films did have their fans. So amongst the whole route, the sort of range of B movies that were out there, these particular ones did actually have a bit more of a following. They did, yeah. And there were really dedicated like fans who would go around the country to see the latest Edgar Wallace uh, second feature at ABC Cinemas. They would just travel around to see it. And, you know, there were people who were really into it. Mm. And so what? maybe we should talk about Merton Park then and what, uh, what the significance is with them. So there were several studios and, and sort of, a lot of small studios in those days. These days, we just think of the big ones of Pinewood and Elstree and Shepperton and whatever. But back then, there were many smaller studios mm. and also a quite a lot more independent production was going on then, I guess. So can you tell us a little bit about Merton Park? I mean, I all I really know about Mer- Merton Park is that they were one of the sort of B companies that made like films that were of quite like B movies that were of the high, higher sort of quality and considered to mm. be, you know, like the, the the ones we're talking about today are sort of the you know, top of the top tier yeah. when it comes to second features and B movies. The Edgar Wallace stuff ones yeah. are the top tier. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the Danzigers uh, as as be they they're more down the bottom, I think. Yeah, so there's a range here, um, and uh, independent artists as well um, who weren't as prolific uh, as Martin Park, but they actually made some very. Uh, you know, they put time and effort into their second features. And then we have the, on the, like, I guess they would be considered the lower end of the industry, the, the Dan Zeiger brothers, who kind of got a reputation for being quite notorious uh, in terms of how bad their second features were. Like, um, you know, uh, basically, <laughs> the average time to write one of these second features would be around three weeks. And it would be someone like Brian Clemens, who's an old hand, who would kind of be a, 
bosh this thing out. Yeah. Um, the Dan Zygers apparently, you know, would give writers like 10 days. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Um, and, you know, they were notorious for kind of using uh, studio space and sets from other films that were left behind and just kind of incorporating it and just saying, like, you know, let's just do a second feature. We've yeah. got we've got a lamp and we've got like a, like a table and we've got like this room. Let's just make a story. Yeah, it. that's like the, the, yeah, the, the Roger Corman model of yeah. production. I mean, in a way, I kind of love this stuff because it's like I have yeah. this image of, you know, just a. Um, someone hanging out the back of a van to get footage for their B movie where they haven't cleared the rights with the council. <laughs> you know? uh, yes, like it's, it's really sort of um, off the cuff, like improvisational stuff. Mm. Um, and like the ones that are shot on location give you such a great view of like London at that time as well. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of really interesting uh, stuff in these films that you might not see in like, uh, yeah, well, the A feature you went to see for example. <laughs> so you've mentioned the the fact that obviously your article is about the death of the one hour supporting feature. So you've, you've already sort of mentioned that a little bit. Um, what some of the some of the criticisms that I read that you sort of quoted from people how, were how it was felt the cinema was still operating on a model that had been devised in the 1940s and they were being quite slow to modernise. Mm. Um, I think that was something that you said that this idea of the the second feature and the the program and all that it was not they weren't really catching up with the times. Was that because of just because of television, or were there other things going on? Uh, I mean, that might have been the sort of feeling about cinema as a media form generally, because like like in the early sixties, the pace of social change was accelerating. I think it's fair to say. Mm. Um, so. I mean, cinema, like cinemas, as in the buildings themselves, uh, like, uh, for example, here in Hull, about six cinemas in Hull ended up being sort of bombed out in the Second World War. Um, And, you know, cinemas had kind of uh, been affected by like wartime bombing, but they also hadn't kind of been part of that. Uh, that sort of, recon- that sort of w- post-war reconstruction. So there were, um, in the post-war era, the sort of new towns that were created didn't always include like a new cinema. And there were a lot of these old cinemas and old buildings that were sort of becoming increasingly sort of run down. Yeah. And I think there was kind of that that perception maybe attached to cinema, but also like the actual program itself as well, um, you know, may have been like something that, looked antiquated uh by that point i don't i don't know yeah. but uh, there's certainly a perception that cinema is kind of a bit old-fashioned and also you know um social the kind of pace of social change in this era the way that sort of uh you know urban populations are shifting and changing the fact that television is becoming more accessible uh, the fact that leisure time is kind of you know uh growing the kinds of things that people can do and spend their money on you know is changing so yeah i would say like maybe there's a perception that cinema is not really keeping up yeah and the i mean you know cinema admissions were just really declining as well by this point, like from 1951, yeah. I think. Have you ever seen that graph of like all the cinema admissions in the UK? Like it goes up, yeah, like up until about 1951, it hits its peak and then it goes down, 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 yeah, down, it's down, down, down. And then it just like, it's like, duh. Uh, by, yeah. by the early 80s, it's like, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's way at the bottom. Um, so cinema is just definitely in decline in this era. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, why don't we talk about the films that you picked? Um, and we, So The Clue of the Twisted Candle, which is a classic Edgar Wallace title, 
I mean, you can you could almost have it. I'm sure you could probably find online an Edgar Wallace title generator because they all just sound like <laughs> you know the something of the something something is pretty much how they all go. Yeah, um, I mean, but like, there is um, there is actually a twisted <laughs> candle though in the film, which there is. I was <laughs> yes. And in the book, I know. Uh, in the sort of story. Um, yeah, it's a yeah. Bit, I did wonder when the candle was going to come in. I'd kind of forgot when I was watching the film, and I imagine this might be the case with a lot of them. I just, I'd forgotten what the film was called while I was watching it, and it wasn't until we got to some candles near the end. I was like, oh yeah, this is <laughs> that's what I'm supposed to have been waiting for, and I'd, I'd sort of forgotten. Yeah, so I, the first time I watched it, I was not convinced there would be any candles at all because my experience mm. of B movies, like one hour second features, is that. Uh, often the content bears no relation to the title. And I think, I suspect this is because like, like I've read, read a newspaper article once, it was an interview with um, the people who ran independent artists. And they, they said something like, well, we just have a list of these titles and then we just like get a story and just slap one of the titles on it. Yeah. So there's no, there's no kind of, uh, it's not necessarily going to follow that the title even matches the film. So I was really impressed that in this case it does. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, again, that, that, it's interesting the similarities because that's very much an AIP sort of model back in the 50s where they would come up with a great title and a poster and sell that to <laughs> to to exhibitors before they'd even written a script. Just, you know, yeah. you've got some catchy names. That's kind of all you need to get people interested. Um, I've been reading quite a lot of Edgar Wallace recently um, for various different reasons. I find his stuff really entertaining. Um Less so, his there's some colonial stuff that's quite shocking to modern yeah. sensibilities, but but his crime stuff is pretty good. Um, so yes, I've been reading a lot of it, and it's so interesting how he was probably Britain's most prolific author. I mean, he was just churning them out at a vast rate, and he was a, an early adopter of technology. He would dictate his books into a recording device that his secretary would then transcribe. And then he wouldn't even bother to read it back. So he'd just like <laughs> basically tell the story. They would type it up and send it to the publisher. And he was doing like, at one point he was writing a new book a week. Um, and, and he wrote plays and short stories. He wrote film scripts. He was head of British Lion at one point. Like he was just uh, such a busy guy. And then of course he went to Hollywood, wrote King Kong and then tragically died. Um, while he was still in his prime, which so he could have had a really long Hollywood career as well, which is a great shame. Mm. But but then, but of course, the the stories that he left behind have just lived on in the hundreds mm. and hundreds of adaptations. And it's interesting that this started. So this nineteen sixty, the clue, the twisted candle, is around the same time. I think maybe a year earlier in Germany, they'd just started adapting Edgar Wallace. Yeah. Um, as well, but those films, the Crimi, as they're known, they're a bit, they're a bit more a feature. I think they mm. tend to have higher production values, but I don't know whether that's just a coincidence. I don't know whether or whether you know somebody at Merton Park saw what was going on in Germany and thought, oh, there might be something in that over here, or maybe it's just one of those coincidences because everybody loved Edgar Wallace. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there. I did. I think I remember reading about the them cutting two of the Edgar Wallace films, like two films together into what, uh, oh, like yes. uh, to make an A feature, which was then sold abroad uh, to European right. countries. Yes, um, which would have, presumably Germany would have been all over that. There would have been a market for that, yeah. Yeah. How would, I was thinking about that. Yeah, you mentioned that, how they cut them two together to make one feature. There must have been some kind of linking story or 
I don't know, like a character who says, oh, yes, and then I did this, and like two adventures of the same detective. I don't know how they would have done that. Maybe Bernard Lee kind of links it together because he's in a lot of these films. Yeah. Um, it would be interesting to know how that worked. Yeah, because, I mean, the clue of the Twisted Candle, the plot is pretty convoluted. I can't see yes. that making sense if you try to, you know, <laughs> you try to <laughs> shove that onto another film. Yeah, um, and I suppose it, you could do it because, like, House of Mystery is um, sort of a story within a story within a story. There's kind of flashbacks and memories and, and whether you could do it like that, like somebody share, telling their tale. I don't know. Yeah, like definitely the flashback would work. Like there's that, you know, you yeah. know that Star Trek episode in the 60s where they do that with the pilot. They do like a flashback and they make it into yes. a, another one. <laughs> I think, yes. <laughs> you I mean, could it do was, it like that. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, it was common as well with TV shows like The Man from Uncle. They were editing those together, two episodes, to make a feature that was then released in Europe in cinemas. Mm. So it's sort of working in reverse. But uh, anyway, so the clue of the twisted candle. So the the director is Alan Davis, but not that Alan Davis. But they they did have a kind of in-house production team, didn't they? There are many people that you mentioned in your article, the same names Mm. come up again and again. Um, Oh, yeah, that was something else, actually something else that I thought you said was really interesting that parts of the industry viewed these films and the sort of the second feature in general as being an important training ground for new talent mm-hmm. but because they had to be made on a budget and on a very short schedule they needed to be made by people who knew what they were doing so it was like a catch-22 um yeah I mean I think there's a kind of sense among the industry of trying to save this as a mode of production by like lauding its virtues like it is a training ground for potentially training ground for new filmmakers because it's you know it's not it's not high pressure and it's not uh, these films don't have a high budget so there's actually scope to learn and make mistakes Mm. um on the other hand I'm not really sure how true that was just yeah, yeah precisely because I mean you you needed like it was easier to have an established crew and a writer who had done these before and, you know, a crew that was able to work under those time pressures. And actually like a lot of the writers for these kinds of films tended to be old hands and tended to be people who kind of, you know, did this quite regularly. So I'm not entirely, I'm not sure how true it was that they were a training ground, but um, they were potentially seen as a training ground. Like we could, we could use this. And like, I think that would have worked very well. Because they're making them on sort of TV schedules, really. They're so quick. And yeah. um, obviously House of Mystery was... House of Mystery is directed by Vernon Sewell, who um, had... You know, he'd made tons of stuff before he got to House of Mystery. He was, he'd been making films for like, the best part of 20 years. So, yeah, it makes you wonder, doesn't it, just how much of a training ground it really was. But um, anyway, clue the twisted candle. Uh, Bernard Lee popping up in this before we all got to know him as M in James Bond. And uh, I understand he's a recurring, he's one of the recurring actors throughout these films, but not always playing the same character. Mm-hmm. Is that Bernard but Lee? He's a, usually, yeah, is he like a detective normally or some kind of... Yeah, he's the detective, yeah. He, he comes up, um, yeah, as a character. Yeah, and it's nice to see him. I'm so used to watching him in James Bond just being in a sort of uh, leather panelled room it's nice to see him actually getting out and about and doing stuff yeah I really like um, him as a character like his detective character I think uh, like he is just a really good actor and I think he's quite likeable 
Like his detective yeah. is quite likable. He's quite compelling. Yeah. I kind of like, I, I really believe him when he's got people in the room at the end and he's going, well, you know, <laughs> yes. and pointing fingers and then exposing who who done it at the very end. Yeah, yeah. And so in this one, it's about um, a businessman who I think we're supposed to think he's from Greece, mm. um, who is some kind of, he's got shady dealings, but he's known to the police. And... Um, his name is Ramon Caradis, and he, uh, yeah, sort of. Inv- I can't even remember now. The, the, like you said, they're so convoluted. He somehow uh, has somebody framed for murder. Very badly as well. You'd think someone yeah. with that, that kind of business empire would know how to stage a decent uh, murder framing. <laughs> yeah, like it's, it's um, pretty ham-fisted. And so this guy who's innocent goes to jail, and. Bernard Lee's character is convinced that he is innocent and wants to prove it and tries to do all these different things to prove it. Meanwhile, the guy that's in jail actually just escapes from jail quite easily, it seems. It doesn't seem very difficult to escape from jail. <laughs> and then we get to, I don't know how much of a, how many spoilers you want to give away, but then we end with a kind of locked room mystery mm. where the evil businessman who's got this kind of safe room or panic room, whatever it is, with with no windows and just a door that's barred from the inside, uh, and a phone to the police, and he is dead in this room, and they have to cut through. The door is like a safe, and they have to burn through to get in. So, it's, so then Bernard Lee has to solve this locked room mystery, which uh, which is quite nice. It's a sort of it's very sort of Sherlock Holmesy uh, or Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, it's quite a nifty like you know twist at the end. Yeah. And um, you said how often audiences will be talking and not really paying attention necessarily in these films. So is that why perhaps watching them now, they can be a little bit hard to follow because maybe the writers were just not that worried because they knew people weren't really watching them or what? (laughs) I don't know whether that's maybe a bit of a harsh judgment. I don't know. Um, People weren't necessarily paying attention all the time. So... Did it matter? Uh, I don't know, but I do know that there is just... <laughs> I get a very televisual feel from watching them in that I can imagine... Yes. I can imagine these films as a kind of moving wallpaper in one corner of the room. Yeah, which they now are. <laughs> I don't kind of... It sounds very disparaging to say that, but like, I mean, they, they, the fact that they, these sorts of this sort of formulaic format kind of moved to television um, is yeah. not a surprise, I think, in the 50s, because, you know, it works pretty well with the flow of television. I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, because by now, on, I mean, on British TV, we had things like, you know, 1960 was shortly before the first, I think the Avengers was 1961. Mm. And we had other shows like uh, Scotland Yard, and a police surgeon and the, you know so the, you know, the crime thriller was already sort of in full swing on tv mm-hmm. so it makes sense and then these were themselves packaged and sold to television mm-hmm. in america and i guess they would have had a second life on british tv as well i don't know uh have they come up on talking pictures tv well they are now yeah they've, been, they've all yeah. been on talking pictures now but i don't know would they have been back then would they have found the uh, way to british television or was it primarily america do you think I'd have to look it up, but I mean, I'd be surprised yeah. if they didn't. Um, yeah. But uh, I have um, American friends who remember these films quite fondly. Um, I, I think they were packaged slightly differently on American telly. Like Edgar Wallace yeah. Mystery Theatre. Was that, was that the one? Yes. 
even though they weren't a TV series, they did all have the same theme tune when they were in cinemas, right? Yeah, which is our theme tune. It's the yes. theme tune for our podcast. Well, this is it. I can't believe it's taken us two years to finally get to doing this because this... These films were clearly the inspiration for you wanting to do this podcast in the first place. They, uh, yeah, they actually were. And I just, I really <laughs> like the theme tune as well. I think it's catchy. Yeah. <laughs> it went to the top of the charts, didn't it? Played by The Shadows. Yeah. Was it Man of, Man of Mysteries, the name of yeah, the song? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put that on at the end. Yeah, I'll play us out with The Shadows version. Excellent. Of the, of the theme tune. Um, and uh, yeah, and then so... The other film that we also had a look at was called, I've lost it already. House of Mystery. House of Mystery. And this one, so this one's slightly more obscure to me because this wasn't part of that Edgar Wallace uh, series, but it was sold again to American television as an episode in the Craft Mystery Theatre. But again, it would have just played as a second feature in British cinemas, right? Mm-hmm. But this is a sort of standalone story. Yeah, and it's quite an interesting. It's got a sort of multi-layered narrative. Um, and actually, I will say my students like almost unanimously enjoyed this one, and they liked it even better than the A feature, which was Peeping Tom. <laughs> so they were like, "This is wow. actually pretty good." Um, uh, yeah. So it was again. It was. It's kind of like a very high quality sort of. Um, supporting feature and it was this was made by independent artists who had set up a shop at Baconsfield Studios um oh, by like okay. 1958 so that, that that's that studio was run by um Julian Wintle and Leslie Parkin right and they sort of did a bunch of these uh films as well and actually you can find them on networks Edgar Wallace uh, you know their big sort of box set they did yes. a couple of the mm-hmm. Martin the uh, independent artists uh, second features are like bonus features on that like yes bonus uh, yeah <laughs> extras um, they are second they are second features yes they are second features yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean I think the like essentially like Winslow and Parkin uh, these the films these sort of B features they made they kind of were. They were something to do for people who were working in the studios um, between sort of projects or people who had a bit of time. And they also could utilize the studio space as well if there was any kind of studio space standing empty. Um, so they actually, they were quite convenient to make as part of like a slate of productions. Um, and actually, I think they tended to be quite like well-reviewed, the independent artists' uh, second features. Um, okay. And a lot of them, I think, are really good. Like House of Mystery, it does kind of... Um, like a lot bits of it do seem kind of quite cheesy and um, like you do have a bit of there's kind of a bit of overacting in places but essentially <laughs> like the script is uh kind of really interesting and it has a lot of twists and turns and flashbacks and you know we have this sort of three layered yeah. kind of story and then you know i don't know how much we want to spoil it but there's a really interesting sort of twist at the end as well yeah it still feels quite like it's quite twilight zoney i think yeah kind of it, yeah yeah um, yeah, and it just kind of, it kind of keeps you guessing. Uh, yeah, and it was um, presumably. I mean, it's just one set and a mm-hmm. little bit of location for some outdoor stuff, but primarily we're just in a house that's covered in cobwebs. Yeah. And uh, like you said, so this potentially this could have been a set that they would have had in the studio anyway, or something like that, or they mm-hmm. just sort of reused it. Um, it's quite nice to see a young Nanette Newman pop up in uh, in this one. 
mm-hmm. uh, she's playing. So there's a there's a couple. If perhaps we could try and outline it, even though it's slightly confusing. Well, I mean, it's just basically it's a haunted house. Yeah, there's a there's a well. There's the twist. We're not supposed. <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of there's two you kind hauntings. Of know that though while yeah. you're watching it because like you can. There's two hauntings, aren't there? <laughs> yeah. Because um, we've got so the young, a young couple are looking at a house. They've been given the key for a house they want to buy. When they come in, there's a woman who's telling them about she lives there apparently, but even though the house looks abandoned, and so she starts to tell a story about the previous owners of the house. So then we flash back to the previous owners, and then those previous owners get someone else telling them about the people who lived there before. So it's like a Russian doll. <laughs> yes, it's a Russian doll film. <laughs> previous owners. So we go we kind of go down three layers into who used to live in this house and there's a scientist doing experiments with electricity in the garage which is always going to end well. Uh and his wife is having an affair with their friend and the wife wants to kill him uh using electricity to make it look like an accident because I think he's had heart trouble but he's too smart and he knows what they're doing and yeah, there's a lot going on for an hour-long movie. Yeah, but it is really fun. I'm glad. You, I'm glad your students liked it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I was actually surprised by how much they wanted to talk about it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I think from a from a like script writing perspective, it's, it's quite a fun film. <laughs> yeah, like it that. Is. Yeah, the Russian doll thing is a good way of putting it. It's a Russian doll narrative, yeah. film inside a film inside a film. Yeah, which for an hour, that's uh, there's a lot really to. Mm-hmm. to cram in it's pretty good but it's interesting you said that the, these would have been sort of three three and a half hour visits to the cinema and now that's your average Marvel movie or like I'm going to go see the new Avatar film uh, this week which is I think that's about three hours again and that we sort of think oh three hours for a movie just seems so long but actually back in the 60s or in the early 60s at least that was the that was you went for an evening out at the pictures yeah and that was what you expected but i guess because you had a feature and a second feature and perhaps an interval in the main feature as well yeah there's plenty of opportunities to go to the loo whereas that doesn't happen now, well sadly. yeah it's quite it's challenging actually to get out of the cinema in the dark to go to the loo and you might miss something you might miss what yeah. the, the new um marvel person is doing yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah this this year i've been to see a few bollywood films at the cinema and they do have intervals in bollywood movies still Oh really? Which is brilliant. It's like such a yeah, it's such a novelty. Hmm. Suddenly you reach a big kind of climax and then it fades out and the lights come on and we're like, What? Oh, wow. This is amazing. Yeah, just the only thing missing was somebody with a tray of ice creams. Oh, I wish we still had people with trays of ice creams. Yeah. <laughs> just walking around. I do remember this in the eighties that, that we'd get intervals and ice cream trays, and I'm sure I've talked about this on here before because I'm so old. Uh that I remember that, but I but they were still only one feature then. Mm. There may have been cartoons. It's kind of like a... You still get them sometimes if you go to, like, the Prince Charles in London. Like, they're all... Okay. But they're kind of... Co- they're sort of, like, quite a... Like, a hipster thing, I guess. Like, you would go out to see a second feature... A double feature or... But it would yeah. be, like, recalling an earlier age of cinema going. And that's yeah. the point, uh, I guess. Yeah. So you mentioned... I mean, getting to sort of towards the death of these films then in your article... Um, there were some people who wanted to keep it going, but that wasn't going to happen. So they were trying to look at other ways, such as just making short films mm-hmm. so that you could pair those with one of these longer A features and you'd still then get that longer night. But that didn't seem to work too well either. 
Yeah. So, I mean, if, if the sort of real estate of the cinema program is shrinking, the, yeah, that idea was like, well, maybe short films of 30 minutes, maybe we can make a bunch of those and sell them to British Line. Uh, so in practice, though, like that was pretty, like it was pretty challenging to, sh- to sell short films at that time, I think. There's a guy called um, Francis Cyril, who's a director, yeah. who was, uh, who made, I think, kind of worked in sort of, made some second features uh, and kind of did direct a sort of um, series of short films, which were like miniature second features, um, some sort of comedy films, some sort of like short stories, dramas. Um, And those, those sort of ended up going out, um, you know, on the circuits, some of them, but like, I think it was pretty difficult to try and carve out a space if you're like a short filmmaker Mm. uh, in the sixties. So I, yeah, I think it was quite difficult. But actually, you see it. You, I I saw one of those Francis Cyril films on Talking Pictures TV. Um, oh, there you go. Yeah, so they've actually come up again yes. <laughs> on TV. Yeah. Um, but the idea of filmmakers having short films as a kind of calling card that would actually be shown in cinemas—you think that sounds like a really good idea, right? That yeah. would make the most of this kind of space at the cinema program. But yeah, I don't think that really works in practice. Mm. Yeah, and it's a real shame. I mean, we can we can perhaps be overly nostalgic, but I I do love the idea of going to the cinema and getting to see more than just half an hour of adverts and then some trailers and then the main attraction mm-hmm. yeah like have it have it be a proper night out yeah i mean you you and i uh were both at that night at the cinema in the 60s in london about five or six years ago where they recreated it was de montfort university recreated a night at the cinema mm-hmm. and they had a supporting feature they played a donovan winter film and they had uh, a newsreel, and then they played One Million Years yeah. BC, and then they ended with the national anthem. Yeah, they went all out and yeah. had actors and everything. It was amazing. Yeah, and I think you were uh, involved in the competition to be the next in the next Hammer film. I didn't necessarily want to be. <laughs> you, got, you got dragged I got, in. I got picked on. I got yes. picked on. Yeah. <laughs> Had to roar. I had to roar like a tiger or something. It's the specifics. The specifics elude me. Yeah, I I had to pretend to be a caveman. So oh god. Yeah, and there are, showmanship. There are, showmanship, yeah. right? The, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was at an event at De Montfort, and on I spotted a photo of myself acting like a caveman on the wall in the corridor. So oh my god. Yeah, that's still that is still out there, sadly. <laughs> But it was, but it was really fun, and it just—it's amazing how, like, you know, how different it was. And films like these, which we now do see on TV, were sort of fundamental part of the film-going experience. So, but what what did kill it off then, in your opinion? Was it just the films were getting longer, or was it because they were just starting to be feel a bit too old-fashioned, as if people wanted to go everything into color and that was too expensive? Like, or was it just a combination of things that? I think like the first main thing is cost. Yeah. As in, if they're sold for a fixed price, can't you know you can't really recoup that money back because um, production costs are going up. Mm. I think another big factor is that the market for releases of independent British films, i.e., not funded by American companies, in the sixties was shrinking throughout the sixties. It became harder to be a sort of independent British filmmaker making low budget cinema, like low budget films. Yeah. And it's hard to get your films out there on the major circuits because they're so dominated by the major studios. So I think that's the second big thing. Um and I guess the third thing is probably television, in that like admissions are going down. Um and these things are sort of being shown 
similar things are being shown on television anyway. Yeah. Um, so I think a combination of, of things. Money is a big part of it, I think. Yeah. Production costs are a big part of it. The, the industry was just changing a lot in this era. Well, the campaign starts here to bring it back. Let's have let's have a full night out at the cinema again. Yeah, let's do lovely. it. Uh, well, thank you so much. I think we we could probably leave it there. Um, but we'll, I don't, you know, recommend everybody go out and find these films or watch them on Talking Pictures TV, and uh, and reminisce about how how things were better in the old days. They really definitely weren't, though. <laughs> no, Bear that in mind. That is also true. <laughs> that, yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah thank you everybody for being with us uh, to listen to this today Uh, we hope you have a great holiday and uh, that you have lots of time to watch old films Um, what else oh yeah so please do if you can uh, review us or rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on that helps us a lot please get in touch we're on Twitter and um, email all the addresses are in the show notes and I don't know, I think that's probably all I've got. Laura, anything else you want to add before we finish? Just have a good Christmas. There we go. And watch some good films. Watch some good Christmas films. Yes. And uh, yeah, and so here we go. I will play us out with the shadows during our theme tune. Uh, and we'll be back next year. <laughs> <laughs>